Romans chapter 3. And we're looking once again at verses 21 through 31. And uh, we'll be in it this week and the next week, and we'll be ready to move on to Romans 4. Eleven years ago, this month, well, next month, August, which will begin tomorrow. But I came here uh, for the weekend with Natalie, and I candidated for the lead pastor position here. So that's been 11 years ago this next month. And the reason I bring that up is because on the Sunday morning that I preached, this is the passage that I chose. And I didn't do that arbitrarily. I really think this is the most important passage um, probably in this whole letter uh, when it comes to understanding the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And... uh, I probably said something to the effect of, uh, if you don't choose me as the candidate, that's fine, but whoever you call in and as you're examining uh, that man, you need to ask him what he thinks about this passage. Nail down what he believes was happening at that cross. There was more to it than the physical sufferings of Jesus. As important as the physical suffering that he endured was, there was more to the cross transpiring between God and his son that enables God, frees God to save us from our sins. Without the cross, we could not be saved. That's one of the points that's in this very paragraph. There is no way a righteous and just God could pass over sins and not hold sinners liable. That it required the person of the Son, Jesus, to go to the cross and experience the wrath of God and the punishment of God for our sins in our place, in our stead on our behalf. It had to be this way. And it's important for us as Christian people to understand the message of the cross and what it entails. It's one thing to say that Christ died for our sins, but it's even more to say, what does that mean? Like, let's unfold that a little bit, you see. And that's what Paul is doing here. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. To the world out right now on golf courses and lounging around their house on a lazy Sunday morning, no thought of God, no thought of the cross, the very message of it, to sit here and listen to a whole sermon on it, that's foolishness to them. Why would I waste my time, right? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, right? And that's why any preacher who wants to be faithful to his calling will with Paul affirm in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The message of the cross 
is the central and foundational component of who we are as Christians and what God has done to save us from our sins. So it's worth our attention for a couple of weeks in this passage. Let's begin reading verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what comes of our boasting? Well, it is excluded By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's just pause and ask God's blessing on the word preached. Father, we depend upon you through your spirit to help us understand the words on this page and how they apply to us. And I pray for each person in here now. We would hear from you. Gift me. Uh, with a gifting that is not mine by nature, but that comes through your spirit. Enable me for the sake of your people and the glory of your name to preach about the cross of Christ. And I pray that it would have its proper effect. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, of course... Romans chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, established our sinfulness and our need of the cross. And then in verse 21, as we began last week, God begins explaining to us through Paul here how our need of salvation is supplied through his son. And understanding that begins with looking and analyzing the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are some key terms, three key terms or words that I think every Christian in this room should know and be able to define to some extent. So there's three key terms here that I think every Christian should know and be able to define to some extent, okay? I'll give you these three terms. They are justification, And we've been talking a lot about that in Romans, and you can't escape it because it's all over the book of Romans. You should know what justification is, okay? You should be able to describe what that is and explain that. So if you were witnessing to somebody who just started reading their Bible, and they're going through Romans, and they get to chapter 3, and they're like, what is it to be justified? What's justification? That kind of thing. You'd be able to explain it. 
The second key word in this paragraph is the word we'll look at mostly this morning, and that is redemption. Very important word as it relates to the cross and how it, how it affects us, right? Redemption, you should be able to explain that. And then finally, the word propitiation, which is a very strange word we don't use in everyday language, but it is very important when it comes to the cross. And that is the word that we'll probably analyze mostly next week. So these three terms, and interestingly enough, when, when Paul's going to explain to the Roman church what the cross is all about, he uses words from uh, the courtroom, like justification. And he uses terms from the marketplace, or specifically the slave market, in a word like redemption. So that these Romans, these first century Romans would understand what he's referring to. And he uses words uh, from the temple, like propitiation, just trying to explain and describe and give a a full-orbed picture of what was happening on the cross and, and how does that affect us. Last week, we were looking specifically at that first word, which is justification. By the way, let me just mention this. These three terms, justification, redemption, propitiation, we could call them theological terms. But I hesitate to use that word because everybody's like, well, theology, I mean, that, that requires a lot of thinking, and I just want the basics, you know, just throw out the basics. But I will remind you that when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he didn't write to the theologians who are in Rome, the professional theologians. He didn't write to just the pastors who are in Rome. He wrote to every single believer in Christ in Rome, expecting them to read this and have an understanding of these three key theological terms, right? So we're not going to be scared away from these terms. These are just a bare minimum. You want basics, these are basics. This is a, these are bare minimum. Paul's uh, understanding would be a bare minimum of what every Christian in Rome needed to know when they understood the work of Christ on the cross, okay? So let's, let's get these down. Justification, remember that word itself is tied to the word righteousness. So we've learned about the righteousness of God way back in chapter 1, verse 17 and 18 that's revealed in the gospel. And then he comes back to it here in verse 21, the righteousness of God. So the word righteousness and justification, they come from the same underlying Greek word. It's all tied up in that idea of righteousness. And when we talk about justification, we're answering a very important question. How can I be right with God? How can I, a sinner, or as we've looked at in detail throughout those first few chapters, how can I, an unrighteous person, be righteous so that I can have right relationship with God forever? Because remember, we've laid that foundation that we're all by nature at enmity with God because by nature we're children of wrath, because by nature we're sinners. So how can I be right with God? How can I be justified? There's a judgment coming, if that's what Paul's teaching, and he is, the rest of the Bible's teaching, there's a judgment coming. How am I gonna stand in that judgment and have God look at me and declare me righteous so I can have eternal life with him? That's the question. How can this happen for a sinner? And the T 
teaching of justification explains that. How you as a sinner can be declared righteous by God and to be declared righteous or to be justified means you have never done anything wrong and you have only done everything right. Anything less than that is not being justified and God's not going to make belief that you're righteous when you're not. Now, Many people's solution, as we have talked about, to this dilemma, I need to be right with God, so here's what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to start doing right, stop doing wrong, and then that way God will see how righteous I am. But remember the problem of verse 20, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So it eliminates that as a, as a possibility at all. Okay, so now we're really in trouble. Which is why he says, you remember verse 21, now the righteousness of God or the righteousness from God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's that good news of the righteousness of God, right? Paul told you way back in chapter 1 that the gospel's great news because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And now he's explaining how that means. You need righteousness you don't have. You need the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. It's available to sinners who will look to Jesus Christ in faith. Remember how we laid this out last week from these verses. This, to be justified by God, how can that happen? Well, clearly, verse 24, it's by grace alone. Look at what he says. We are justified by his grace as a gift. Or by his grace freely. You can't earn it. If it's, some, if it's something graciously given to you, you didn't merit it. It's the only way you're going to be justified. The means are, it's through faith alone, right? That's throughout this whole passage. But just what we just read in verse 22 the righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The source of your justification is Christ alone, verses 22 and 28. It's faith in someone. Well, whom is that? It's in Jesus. So that when you trust in Jesus, God declares you righteous, which means you are forgiven of all your sins, and he takes the righteousness of Christ himself and credits it to you so that now you have all the righteousness you need and the result of course is verse 27 to the glory of God alone what becomes of our boasting in any aspect of salvation it's excluded because we didn't earn it we didn't deserve it we haven't worked for it it's all because of Jesus Christ he is our righteousness now in wrapping up this discussion of, of righteousness or, and, and justification let me read to you Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9, and I should be up on the screen for us. Paul says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, because if you have Christ, you have everything you need, right? In other words, what he's saying is I can lose everything else, but if I have Christ, I have all I need. 
and be found in him, listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is a righteousness that comes from God himself, that supplies the righteous demands of God that comes to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this leaves you in the situation Paul talks about in chapter 5 of Romans. Verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? Since we have been justified by faith, what's our status now? No longer one through three people, Romans 1 through 3. We're now, Romans 5, one people, and we have this uh, peace with God. We are in a right standing before him, which is where we want to be. So that the core conviction of our justification in verse 28 of chapter 3, we hold then here at Calvary. At Calvary Bible Church, chapter 3, verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And it's so important to be resolved in that way. Because this, what I just taught you, has been attacked throughout church history. Okay? It's been attacked throughout church history. That one can be justified by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Yet we hold it, right? Because we see it emerge right from the pages of Scripture. It's, it's the tendency of human beings. It's the tendency of man-made religion to somehow be able to add to or contribute to salvation. Maybe it's something just, it seems very simple, like somebody might say, well, yeah, to be right with God and be saved, you have to, be, you have to believe in Jesus and be baptized. And if you believe in Jesus and you are you're baptized, well, then you can be justified by God. See how close that is? But what's the problem with that statement? You've added to faith alone. You have now added to it. Well, Paul dealt with the same thing when he dealt with circumcision. The early church battled the same thing. They were saying, yeah, okay, we'll believe in Jesus. We believe you have to believe in Jesus and you have to be circumcised. Nothing too complicated about that. We just add this one other thing to salvation and justification. But friends, that then erases the entirety of what Paul is saying here. You can't have it both ways. You cannot have it to where you're... It's, it's either or. You see, you have to make a decision here. It's either I'm all in on Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done the salvation, the forgiveness I receive from him, being justified in him alone, or it is him plus something else. But those are two entirely different gospels. So important. And it's important even in our own lives because we have within us little Pharisees running around who just have trouble accepting the right standing before God simply through faith in Jesus, right? And depending wholeheartedly on another. We still feel the impulses to gain God's favor. 
or to do as much as we can to make ourselves right with God instead of remaining focused on Jesus. That's within all of us. We are all by nature legalistic, right? The gospel is counterintuitive. It really is. That's why it's one of a kind. You don't find anything like this, not the pure, true gospel, anywhere else in any other religions of any other world ever, ever found anywhere. It's unique in that way. That's justification. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a powerful statement. Well, now let's transition from justification to redemption. First key word, justification. Second key word, redemption. And if you look at verse 24, that's where we'll find it. But I want to start with that first phrase again. We're justified by his grace as a gift. So justification then is free. But what's clear from this verse is that you to be justified is free for you. But your justification was not free. It came at a price. Look at how this plays out in verse 24. You're justified by His grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How can an unrighteous person be declared righteous? Well, now he's getting into the nitty-gritty, right? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This was the only way. And that word redemption means to make free. If you redeem someone, you would make them free by the payment of a ransom. And in first century Rome, slavery was a thing. Oftentimes it, I mean, sometimes it would be where uh, like the horrific slave market of the uh, early America and, and uh, European history where they would just go into another country, steal people, and then take them and enslave them. That was part of it. But there were other ways to be enslaved in the Roman Empire. You could be in serious debt to somebody or your family could be in serious debt to somebody and then all of a sudden you end up owned by that person, right? And you're in debt and there's no freedom for you and you're working off your debt. And they use this type of word for an individual that would go in and pay whatever was required. Now listen, to free that slave. The debt then was erased and that slave goes free because what they owed was paid in full. So they no longer owed anything to the slave owner, and they were set free. And Paul uses that word and that idea, freedom after the price has been paid to describe what Jesus did for us on the cross. The wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is eternal separation from God under his righteous wrath. And what Paul is teaching here is that in order to free you and me from that, required his son, God's son, to go to the cross and pay that price. 
A price was to be paid. God's righteousness demanded it. And if we were going to go free from our sin debt and our obligation, then somebody had to pay it. And that someone is Jesus. And the way was through the cross. And what you receive from this redemption, Paul summarizes in one word in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. And he says this, In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption, which is powerful, by the way. It's something you have right now in Christ. We have redemption through his blood. There's the cross. And what does he mean by this? I mean, if he's really going to narrow it down, what do we mean by redemption, Paul? You have the forgiveness of your trespasses. You are forgiven now because the debt has been paid. There's nothing left to pay. Jesus paid that debt. And forgiveness, is, of course, means the act of freeing from an obligation, guilt, or punishment, pardon, or cancellation. If you're in Christ because of what he did on the cross, he paid your debt of sin. So you owe nothing. You're free now, you see? And it's so important to understand this. It's so important to dig into this even a little further. That's what I want to do. I grew up with a song. Maybe some of you did too. It was a gospel song or a hymn. And it said, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Now, I really have no problem. I, I love the first part of that. Jesus paid it all. It's pointing to the sufficiency of the redemption we have in Christ, right? And the cross work to pay for our sins. It's that next phrase I'd have to say, okay, I've got to sit down with the author and say, what do you mean by that? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That's interesting because when Jesus paid it all, it means I owe nothing of the sin debt left. If you misinterpret that phrase, you're like, okay, Jesus paid my debt. Now I got to pay back Jesus for all my sins. You could misinterpret it that way. Now, if all this author meant was by that, Jesus paid it all, you belong to him now. You live your life for him. Then that's good. That's good theology. We give ourselves entirely to him based on the mercies of God he has shown us. But friends, we are not in debt for our sins. They're gone. Your sins have been canceled and erased through the blood of Jesus. That's what forgiveness is. If you went searching for what you owed, nobody'd find it. It's no longer on the books. That's how sufficient the cross was for his people. That's why Jesus could exclaim so clearly on the cross, it is finished. By that he knew the price had been paid in full for his people, you see. I want you to find in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 10... Hebrews chapter 10. Sometimes Hebrews is a tricky book to find, isn't it? It's, uh, it's right after Philemon, which is even trickier. Okay, so Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews. 
right? And if you go to James, you've gone a little too far. So find Hebrews chapter 10. And I want you to begin in verse 11 here. Remember at the time the author of the Hebrews is writing and even in Paul's day, it was before AD 70. Remember that important event in AD 70 when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Well, it wasn't before that and so they had daily sacrifices going on just as God commanded in the Old Testament and so all sorts of uh, uh, animals were being sacrificed depending on what the particular sacrifice required and sometimes what the offerer could could uh, could afford and, and so all these animals are being sacrificed daily and what he says here in verse 11 he says every priest stands keyword every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins alright pause for a minute What's very clear here is that those animal sacrifices were never intended to take away the sins of human beings. They could never do that. An animal could not take away your sins. It couldn't pay the price required for you. That required Jesus. That required the Son of God to assume the body prepared for him and in that body on the cross to bear the weight of your sin and the penalty for your sins. That's what he's saying. But verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, I love this, he sat down at the right hand of God. You notice the contrast. The priest would stand daily offering these sacrifices which could never take away sin but when Christ who offered himself as the sacrifice once for all, all time, once for all the redeemed sins, their past sins and their present sins and their future sins, all their sins combined, all the people of God for all the ages combined, he paid that price on the cross and then what did he do afterwards? He sat down. There's nothing more that needs to be done for my people's sins. That's the posture of completion. I have paid for the sins of my people. Now, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, there is no charge that can be brought against them. What charge could be brought against those for whom Christ died and was raised and is now interceding for them. That's the idea. Waiting, verse 13, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For by a single offering on the cross of himself he has perfected, he has perfected now for all time those who are being sanctified. That's you and me. In other words, all your sins have been paid for in the person of Christ. Now, some of you maybe have Catholic backgrounds. You came up in the Catholic tradition. One of the 
key differences, and there are many, dramatic differences, like deal-breaking differences in the Roman Catholic Church and how they view things, is the, uh, of what they, how they view the Lord's, well, they call it the Mass. Because what they're doing each week, whether you know this or not, the blood becomes, or they say, becomes the real blood of Christ, and the body becomes the real body of Christ, and week upon week, you know what they're doing? This is their official doctrine. I'm not making this up. You could Google it after the service. They're re-sacrificing Christ for our sins. Week upon week upon week. Not only that, they carry the doctrine of purgatory, which means that when you die... Your soul will go into purgatory in this place of suffering for a God-specified amount of time in which you will burn off more of the sin through suffering to make yourself ready for heaven. But that's not the gospel. Sometimes I think about, if I were a Catholic priest, how do you go into a room of someone dying say, Take heart, brother or sister. You've been pretty good. You probably only got a couple thousand years tops in purgatory suffering for your sins. And then you'll experience the glory to come. I make light of it, but people are trusting in that. How many millions and millions of people around the world have been presented a false gospel? where the true gospel is so much better, so much more glorious and great, the good news, then we have redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice for you once has perfected you when it comes to your sins. You are fully forgiven, Christian. And that's why each week here at Calvary, Bible Church, we rehearse in our liturgy the process of seeing how glorious God is and then remembering our sinfulness, but then looking to the cross of Jesus Christ and being reassured of the forgiveness that we have in Him. Do you see how important it is week upon week to be reminded, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. And how important that is for you and me, Christian, is we, we really try. By the grace of God and the Spirit in us, we try to live for God. We set out to do what is right, and we find that we just can't completely do it. We can leave a Sunday morning service with the best of intentions. I'm really going to deal with that sin I got this week. It will, it's not going to overcome me this week. This is the week now. And yet what inevitably happens, somewhere along the line, we fail again and again and again, which is why we need again and again and again to be reminded from Jesus, I paid for that sin. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far you're Sins are separated from you, never to be held against you. 
Every single week, Christian, you should leave. Back in, back in Romans now, and in, in chapter 4, I love this. And we'll look at this more when we study about Abraham in just a couple weeks. But every single week, I hope, if you're truly a believer, you leave this, this service joyful and blessed like this man. Look at what, what Paul describes using David's psalms here. Verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There's a blessedness in it, isn't there? I'm forgiven. No matter what else is going on in my life, I have redemption, namely the forgiveness of sins through the once for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Your debt has been paid. You are redeemed, Christian. You're free from the obligation of sin. You know, I love the account of the paralytic that was brought to Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. They bring this paralytic to him, and uh, the verse, says, uh, verse 2 says, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, or be encouraged, or be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Of course, remember the Jews were in an uproar about that, that nobody has a right to forgive sins except God alone, to which Jesus is like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I often thought, how wonderful it would be to have Jesus look at me in the daily struggles with my own flesh and sin, maybe fresh on the heels of a failure, and to have Jesus himself look at me and say, take heart, Jess. Your sins are forgiven you. That would put a spring back in your step, wouldn't it? It'd be hard to stay downcast then. Well, Jesus said I'm forgiven. But then it dawned on me, Did you know that every week when we partake of the Lord's Supper, which we do every single week at the end of the service, do you know what Jesus says to each one of you? Take heart. Your sins are forgiven you. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's gospel, later on when he instituted the Lord's Supper, right before he goes to the cross, Matthew 26, he says, he says it took a, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, his disciples now in that room. He gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. By the way, it's not drink all of it. I grew up thinking that, like you've got to finish every last drop. No, it means you, my disciples. Here is this cup, now you, my disciples, drink of it. Well, what does this mean, Jesus? Well, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For what? For the forgiveness of sins. This is week upon week, every time we partake, Jesus saying, take now this cup. Take this cup and drink it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you, for your forgiveness. You take heart, my daughter, my son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven you. We do this at the end so that when we leave, 
No matter what else we've heard, even if in a message we've been rebuked by something we're doing wrong or we've been reminded about the week to come that it's going to be hard for us in some way or no matter what it is, we leave here a forgiven people. Your sins have been forgiven you. And friends, I hope that is good news for you. If you do not know that you have the forgiveness of sins, can I just urge upon you right now, I mean, just really press in and say, this is the most important thing you need to be thinking about right now. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? You know, you may be here this morning and you may have been under the gospel a lot of your life, but now you're just frankly messing around with God. And I want to encourage you right now to repent and look to Jesus Christ so you can know you have forgiveness through him and through his blood. The good thing about the gospel is that it's freely offered and available to all. There's never a restriction on to whom the gospel goes. The good news is what God has done for sinners on the cross. The good news is that if you will turn from your sins and trust in him, all these saving benefits I'm talking about, these awesome things like being declared righteous, being forgiven of your sins, they come to you freely by his grace via faith in Jesus Christ. Turn to him now and look to him in faith. Let's pray. All we can say or need to say, Father, is we thank you for your son and we thank you for the work of the cross and for the relationship now we have been brought into with the triune God because and through him we praise you for that. And I pray even now as we take the Lord's Supper that you would cleanse the conscience of every person in here, that they would see themselves as forgiven through Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Just stay silent. Let's